Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. You could be an H2 owner. That was the slogan, accompanied by the sound of Handel's water music of the 1989 campaign to sell shares in the 10 water companies of England and Wales. Some two and a half million people applied and the shares were six times oversubscribed. Prices rocketed. Yet 35 years on, water privatisation is seen as a failure. Last week, England's largest water company, Thames, parted company with its chief executive amid rising concern about its investment backlog and spiralling debts. And several other companies are on the watch list. Privatisation was supposed to unleash a wave of new investment and renew the water and sewage system for the 21st century. Now there's widespread dissatisfaction with the quality of the service. Most of us aren't H2 owners these days anyway. Of the 10 companies that were sold, all but four now belong to private equity owners whose highly leveraged structures are seen to be at the heart of the sector's financial woes. We're joined today by Jonathan Portez, uh, an old friend of the show, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London, who, as a young civil servant, worked on water privatisation in the late 1980s. Jonathan, welcome. It's good to have you back. Good to be back. Well, I suppose we should start by looking at where we are. You know, the English water companies were privatised in 1989 with no debts, and now, collectively, they owe £54 billion. You know, paid out £65 billion in dividends since privatisation. I suppose the first question is, was this inevitable, given the way that the companies were sold off? Well, it certainly wasn't supposed to be inevitable. It wasn't the idea. I think we knew at the time, the Treasury certainly knew at the time, and I think everybody involved in the privatisation knew at the time, that the companies were being sold extremely cheap and that this would result in significant windfall gains to people who bought shares, as well as to the management of the companies at the time. That was designed in because there was a very strong political imperative that the sale should be seen as a success. There was a strong political imperative that those people who, the small investors who bought the large parts of the companies should be seen to get a large return on their investment. There was a certain amount of political risk around the sale and so on. So all those pressures meant that the Treasury Whenever it tried to argue that the companies should be subject to a somewhat more stringent regulatory regime or that the share should be sold somewhat more expensively, the Treasury was never going to win against the combined forces of number 10, the backbench of the Conservative Party, at the investment bankers who were advising the sale and everybody else. In that sense, we were always going to be flogging off taxpayer assets on the cheap. What we tried to do, however, at the Treasury was to try and ensure that that was only temporary, that over time the regulatory regime would tighten up and it would genuinely drive down returns to something that was more like a sort of economically normal level for a very low-risk long-term asset. That clearly failed. From an economic point of view, I don't think that was inevitable. You clearly could have had a much tighter regulatory regime in the years after privatization that would not have led to the company's failure. You could have insisted on more investment, lower returns. You could have done something about these very arcane 
cash extracting financial structures, but we did. And for that, I think you have to look at the political economy of what's happened over the last 20 years, not the economics. Um, and, and there, I think the jury is out. Was it inevitable? Well, at least several opportunities for things to go better have, were clearly missed, right? In particular, when Labour came in in 1997, which was not that long after the sort of the first few years and imposed a relatively small windfall tax to the great howls of anguish from some of the privatized companies, I think when that windfall tax passed off with relatively minimal damage to the share prices of the companies, I think the regulators and politicians should have realized, hey, actually maybe these regulatory regimes could be squeezed quite a lot further without damaging and still maintaining the levels of investment and, and given a better deal for shareholders and consumers. That, so that was one opportunity missed. A second opportunity missed, I think, the fact that you wrote six years ago about Thames Water, and basically we've got six years on and we've seen what happened last week, is a pretty damning indictment of everybody who's had any involvement in that regime over the last six years, I would have thought. In my view, the real alarm bell was the fact that Thames Water's balance sheet was too weak to support the development of the super sewer under the river. And that just passed. I mean, obviously, the bankers were keen to have a separate vehicle with all the all the fees that that produced. But nobody really thought, well, why, if this is such a strong company, it can't afford to make the capital investment there. And I can't understand why that passed unnoticed. Some of us did complain at the time, but of course it made no difference. Why were Labour so supine after 1997-98? I mean, I think a lot of it, and this may relate to, also to the, to the super sewer, you know, this was one of the political arguments for privatization in the first place was that, you know, you didn't want this public investment on your, even though it was, everyone knows that in some fundamental sense, this really is public investment. You didn't want it on the public balance sheet. And if it was on the public balance sheet, then the level of investment would be suboptimally low. And therefore, you had to find ways of getting it off balance sheet, even though that involved a level ultimately meant not just more cost, but in the end, it turned out more risk to the taxpayer than actually having it straightforwardly on the balance sheet would have been. Uh, that was one of the motivations for privatization in the first place. But it was also clearly one of the reasons, I think, why Labour didn't want to poke too deeply into the mess, because they thought, well, you know, these companies are safely off the, the government's balance sheet. The investment is being financed. Yes, maybe consumers are paying more than they should, and maybe the financial in engineering is a bit dodgy, but that's not really our, our problem. And of course, they were wrong about that, at least over the medium to long term. Yeah, the, of course, the other thing is that the numbers are so large that they are big enough to make an impact on the public finances. You know, they're measured in tens of billions. And economically, that is a, you know, that is a dumb thing to, to let drive your policy. But the political economy of the way we do fiscal policy in, in the UK and the way that we worry about public sector debt when it's on the balance sheet and not when it's just a contingent liability has wider implications than just this, of course. You mentioned earlier the squawks of the water companies when the windfall tax was imposed. I mean, a very consistent argument, which, you, which certainly I've heard from them over the years, is that it, it is not possible to wind back 
what has been done in terms of the fiscal arrangements that allowed them to run their balance sheets as they saw fit, because to do so would change the fundamental terms of the investment that the companies originally made. And this would deter investors from putting money into the businesses, water companies, or indeed other utility businesses, which the government had privatised over the years. Do you think this, there's anything in this? And the, and the idea that even when you're set on a course which is clearly unsustainable, you should simply plough on because to, to change the rules of the game would be, would be prejudicial to a few investors in Abu Dhabi and China. It's a very ingenious argument. It's probably one that's put forward by the lawyers acting for the water companies. But it's an argument which is very germane at the moment. That's right. And I, I mean, I think you have to sort of separate out the... <laughs> moral, as it were, the legal, then the uh, the political and the economic implications of that argument. Because it's not a crazy argument to say that ex post or retrospective taxation or confiscation of assets in some sense is problematic. But of course, equally, it is not an absolute argument against doing things which change the regime retrospectively. I mean, so obviously, we have a very relevant recent example in the North Sea, right? where no one is arguing, actually, no one is particularly arguing that the North Sea oil and gas companies have behaved anywhere nearly as badly as the water companies in terms of the way that they, they structured their finances or, or the way they've done their investments. But nonetheless, we've seen feet. You're taxing the return on large investments that they've made at a much higher rate than, uh, than we said we would. And of course, they've complained about that. But equally, it's not been the end of the world. The roof hasn't come crashing in either. You know, I would not rate the moral arguments, as it were, very highly. I do not think that if you impose a, a regulatory regime going forward, which in effect reclaims some of the ill-gotten gains, that that is necessarily legally problematic. Does it deter foreign investors or indeed domestic investors going forward? Clearly, at some level, it would, right? There are genuinely cogent arguments for saying that you can't just go back and confiscate supernormal profits that have arisen because you messed up the regulatory regime. Well, there is, of course, another precedent here of BAA, British Airports Authority, where the bid arrived to this company. And after the bid arrived, the government imposed a competition commission, as it then was, investigation which insisted on a breakup of the monopoly which they had insisted the government insisted at that point didn't exist and of course it does and they were forced to sell Gatwick and Stansted and it actually didn't put off the foreign investors at all. I, I mean I think there are almost certainly limits on what you can do that would be practical, legal or sensible. But equally, I think we're a long way away from them now. And I would certainly favour doing something that did its best to claw back some of the supernormal profits of the past. How you do that with a company like Macquarie, of course, which of course took its money and, and got out at least of 10, is, is a lot harder. <laughs> you could, of course, um, punish them for something else because they've come in to, uh, to invest in Southern, something which I find absolutely extraordinary after what they've done, that the government should allow that to happen, but it, it's happened. Exactly. And there may be some collateral damage. So, for example, the largest single shareholder in Thames now is the university superannuation scheme, you know, <laughs> which, which accounts... They're not foreigners. For, well, no. 
I would say that let's attack the them. largest single part <laughs> of my my net worth is is in USS, yeah. right? Yeah. That's where my pension is. <laughs> the, the, the point about losses is another kind of germane thing at the moment, which is clearly we don't know what will happen with Thames and and indeed some of the other companies which are extremely highly leveraged. But if they are indeed unable to finance themselves going forward, there is a question which, you know, some people have been floating about what should the government do about it in terms of if they are if they are bankrupt, then technically the license is forfeit and the investors will face potentially losing some or all of their investment, depending on where they sit in the class of creditors. Well, I certainly, ultimately, if they're insolvent, then there are losses. Somebody has to bear those losses. And it certainly should be the creditors first in line to bear those losses before either consumers or taxpayers. That's what the market prices of Thames debt is saying. Well, only the bits that are not inside the regulated entity. Well, so far. I I, I think it's worth saying at this point that we should avoid tiring all the companies with the same brush because the quoted ones are, as far as I can see, solvent. They have adequate capital. They are not overstretched. It is essentially Thames and Southern amongst the largest, which are the potential basket cases. Yes, I mean, I think what obviously needs to separate out between the sort of general view that the companies were allowed to make, especially in up to the last few years, profits which were significantly in excess of what should have been allowed on a relatively low risk investment, which was true of the whole sector pretty much. And then the financial engineering, which some companies then used to lever up even those somewhat excessive profits to being grossly excessive profits in return for taking a lot more market financial risk, which has now come back to bite Thames because of the rise in interest rates and other factors like that and inflation. I must give a plug to my Jonathan's brilliant idea, which says that you should amend the licence to oblige all the companies to have at least 25% of the shares in public hands and the full stock exchange quote. If they bleat about the cost of capital, then they would be forced to sell off the 25% at a very low price. Do you think it's a good idea? Well, I think it would be certainly be an improvement, but I think we probably need to sort of step back and think of, about you know how we want these companies to be managed where we expect the financing for investment to come from and what the appropriate structures are for that. We started out and I said, do you think this mess would be inevitable? And you said, well, not necessarily. It could have been done. Do you think that the system could be, broadly as it stands, reformed, i.e. you continue to have these utility, regulated utilities permanently vested in private companies subject to some form of regulation? As I said, I mean, I I would not rule it out. It's clearly possible in theory, in principle, and it has the advantage of being the easiest place to get to from here without huge disruptions. On the other side, you have the example that we failed to make it work for a long time, the fact that this isn't the way that most other countries do it, and you have these various other ideas on the table. So I do think, I think it's perfectly reasonable to argue that that is the best place to go. But I want to start by saying 
let's just do that as opposed to stepping back and saying, well, let's have a fairly fundamental rethink of how we think we're going to finance and structure this sector going forward. Yes. Well, realistically, there are only two sources of capital, aren't there? There are the shareholders and the consumers. You could disguise the consumers as some sort of taxpayer incentive, they're but the they're the same people, really. Yes. So if you expect the money to come from foreign investors, for example, then you may decide that's what you want to do. But then you think about, well, is that in the form of effectively long-term government bonds that are guaranteed or quasi-guaranteed along the network rail mode? Or do you want a different balance of risk and reward? And if so, what's the risk that they're taking and what sort of rewards should they be given? You may have the same people, but you have to decide what you think they want and what you, you're prepared to give them. Mm. Yeah. The trouble with this is, of course, with time, the regulator gets gamed by the extremely well-paid legal advisors to these companies. And, of course, the more complex they can make it, the happier they are and the more wriggle room there is to comply with the letter of the uh, regulations while actually abusing it the way Thames have done. Well, absolutely. And that is an argument for just saying, well, we should accept that given that the best and cheapest way for the, for the government or the wider public sector to borrow from large investors or abroad is just to issue things which are either de jure or de facto, as in the case of network rail, government bonds, and pay for them accordingly. Now, that was a lot easier, of course, to say that in the uh, 2010s when we could borrow effectively for nothing than it is now when guilt yields are rising quite sharply. So uh, the equation has changed rather. Just to go back to the analogy you drew with network rail, basically issuing what is government debt and then effectively paying contractors to do jobs on the railway, you could argue that that's sort of what we've done with the water companies, except they've issued the debt themselves and behaved like companies paying chief executives multi-million pound salaries for essentially running a riskless business. So the more you can get towards a world in which we recognise what this really is, which is a low-risk contracting business, where effectively the equity risk they need to fund is the ability to build sewage plants and stuff we need as cheaply as possible. But would you do that just for the basket cases or would you insist on doing that for the whole of the industry? That's a hard one, but I think you want something that you hope will stand the test of time. So a framework, at least, that that applies to the whole sector. Yeah, but you still still have the problem of long-term regulatory capture, I'm afraid. It won't go away because their lawyers are better paid than yours. But always when you start these debates, the first thing people talk about is they say, well, we must avoid nationalisation at any cost. That's the worst outcome. But do you think we should rule out nationalisation in this instance? Again, I wouldn't rule it out ex ante. We have renationalised one way or another quite large parts of rail. Um, It hasn't been a disaster. (laughs) Hasn't been a stunning success either, but it's not obvious that they that they effectively nationalised bits of the network are worse than the the bits that aren't. And lots of countries around the world have perfectly well functioning nationalised water industries. It, it's hardly a radical uh, a radical statist or socialist idea. Mm. I think on the sort of list of options that that I would set out, it would not be top of my list. Yeah. It seems to me to be rather a large amount of upheaval with some quite big risks. Yeah. 
without necessarily obvious huge gains over getting a structure that involves less change, but deals with some of the problems we have now. What options would you would you pitch us? I would certainly like to see some sort of public benefit company type structure. In right. I, I have to say, as far as the sort of stealthy renationalization of rail is concerned, I wouldn't say that that's been an outstanding success either. It's so opaque, you really don't know how good or bad it's been. It just seems to me to be a long series of subsidies of one sort or another. Well, no, I agree with that. But as I say, that's not a criticism of nationalisation as such. It is an argument against sort of, oh, well, let's nationalise Thames Water because they're going to go bust, but leave the other companies that are doing okay to do their thing for the moment and then continue this sort of ad hoc patching up as opposed to stepping back and saying, how do we run run the sector? Yeah. I think okay. probably patching up is the best solution. <laughs> yes, but it does leave us with the rail problem, doesn't it? Which, as you say, is it will be impossible to work out what works and will end up just muddling through for the next 10 or 15 years. I think years. that's a fair slogan of, for what the British government does, actually. <laughs> no expectations, Neil. No expectations. You need to aim higher. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the one thing which does always puzzle me when I look at this is we started out by saying that the objective with all this was to invest in the water industry. If you talk to people in the industry, they will, of course, point to the investment that went on and say, well, look, you know, we were we were told what to spend and we spent it. (laughs) And yet we are now in a situation where everyone seems to feel that there isn't enough or hasn't been sufficient investment. So on that kind of planning level, it's it's very hard to figure out, was it that just not enough money was spent? Some strange, exogenous event happened, which basically meant that what seemed to be adequate was no longer happen, adequate, or, or whether the actual quality of what was invested was poor. Uh, I would certainly blame the regulator. I think the regulator has been completely supine here. The only thing I would say in its favour was, of course, when they tried to impose the price caps on Thames and others in the last pricing round, Thames and others appealed to the Competition and Markets Authority, which overruled off what? And if you have a regulator that overrules another regulator, it basically emasculates the second regulator because everything that they say in future has got to be viewed by the possibility that it's going to be referred higher up the chain. I think that was an extremely damaging ruling and we are still paying for it. Yes, I agree with that. I found that very hard to understand. Yeah, well, I think it's basically one with the whole regulatory system, which even for people who were vaguely interested in the subject, was Mm. absolutely impossible to understand how these numbers uh, were computed. Mm. I'd love to do it. I'd love to. I'd love to be the water regulator. I think they should make you a water they regulator. Would have then, a ve- we can, then we can have you back. To, yeah, absolutely. To, to tell us how it, fantastically you got on. Just seems to me, you know, <laughs> these guys have got to be put back in their box. You need somebody who is uh, tough and twenty years younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time in finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.